This morning, as announced, we want to begin a new study together in the book of 1 Peter. So if you'll join me in 1 Peter chapter 1, and we'll sort of begin an introduction to this new letter we'll be studying over the season ahead, 1 Peter chapter 1. And this morning, I'm going to actually just read verses 1 and 2 as we sort of take an introductory look. So if you would stand together with me out of reverence for the Word of God as we read it this morning. 1 Peter 1, beginning in verse 1, says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. And Father, we humbly ask as always for the help, the assistance of your Holy Spirit as we open up the Word of God. Lord, we acknowledge by faith that it is exactly that. Lord, it is your Word that your Spirit has inspired to be profitable for doctrine and reproof and correction and training in righteousness that we as men and women of God can be thoroughly equipped for every good work that you've called us to. So Lord, would you teach us and instruct us, strengthen us in the inner man with might and power by your spirit as your word goes into our hearts this morning. Give us fertile soil in our hearts and an ear to hear what your spirit would say to this part of your church. And we ask for your Holy Spirit to teach us and give life to the Word of God this morning. Bless this time, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, A.W. Tozer said, What a person thinks about God is the most important thing about that person. What a person thinks about God is the most important thing about that person. You know, I think Peter himself, at this point, writing his letter as an older saint, a more mature Christian, he had walked with Jesus for those three and a half years, ministered with Jesus, was ordained to be one of the first 12 apostles, had the experiences of the early church that we read about in the book of Acts behind him at this point. I think Peter had come to realize that exact same reality that I just stated that Tozer himself proclaimed that what a person thinks about God is the most important thing about that person. That life is really all about God. It really is very little about us as fickle and weak and finite little human beings. God and his work is really what our thoughts should be predominantly occupied with. That should be the real focal point. And I think, quite honestly, that is why right away, if you noticed in our reading, Peter launches right into some really major, deep doctrines, some deep theological truths, speaking about the greatness of God and, and the glorious plan of salvation that he has orchestrated for us, because he wants to put the focus of believers he's writing to upon 
God himself. You know, many times as Christians, I think one of our greatest flaws is that we almost put too much focus on ourselves and who we are and what we're not doing or how we failed or our part in the process of this relationship with the Lord. And, and I think God would intend for our focus to be more consumed and occupied with who he is and what he has done and what he is able to do and will accomplish for our lives. And we see this week and we'll take note as we continue with our study next week in verses 3 4 and 5 as well that Peter wastes no time to get right into really deep and meaty doctrinal truths that are really weighty matters regarding the spiritual life in the first five verses Peter really addresses some really important doctrines regarding our Christian faith Doctrines that God would have us understand and be established. And then today, for that reason, as we sort of take an introductory look, we want to begin to just sort of discuss and digest some of the grandeur of God's salvation that's described in these first five verses. Now, if you'll permit me a, a moment or two of your patience as we begin a new study through another New Testament letter or epistle as they're, they're often referred to, I want to state a few things by way of introduction as we begin a new study together. First thing being this regarding 1 Peter. It was written most likely sometime around, and we can't be dogmatic, sometime around 64 A.D., and that's important. Sometimes I don't think the date is necessarily so important for us in regards to understanding a, a New Testament letter. But for 1 Peter, that is critical. That it was written sometime around 64 AD because historically, 64 AD was the time when the great fire of Rome took place when Caesar was reigning Nero at that time. And Nero blamed the Christians and the church for that incredible fire that took place historically in Rome. Now, many people believe, historians, that it was actually Nero himself that started this incredible blaze that destroyed a great portion of Rome. That for his own political agendas and reasonings, that Nero himself actually started this blaze to destroy a certain part of the territory so that he could create a great rebuilding process and that after he himself was the one who started it, looking for a scapegoat, of course, for political reasons, that he found a great, a great opportunity to blame the Christians, the infant church, at this time. And what a sensible thing. I mean, these were a group of people who were always talking about being, no pun intended, on fire for the Lord. And they were talking about how they were the light of the world. And so Nero, looking for a scapegoat, a group that was very radical and becoming very prominent, uses the Christians in the church as a scapegoat, blames them for this intense, horrific fire that takes place. And as a result of that, he and the people on that day then launch one of the most fierce persecutions against Christians and against the early church. And Peter... Being alive at that time, sensing the sufferings and the problems of the current time and sort of the coming tidal wave ahead for Christians. And Peter, with foresight, sensing what was taking place, I think began to recognize there was a tsunami of opposition that was about to come against Christians in the culture. And it would get incredibly intense in the days ahead that the world was changing quickly. 
and that the government was now very opposed to Christians and to the thing called the church. And that society was not only difficult, but it was going to just get harder and harder to live in and survive if you were a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it seemed, hear me, that Christianity was in crisis. Sound familiar? <laughs> that Christianity was in crisis and Peter, a mature saint, deeply rooted in his relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, recognizes that there were indeed some things that he wanted to share that would be very helpful for Christians to navigate in this season of their life as Christianity seemed to be in a time of real crisis. Now, secondarily, let me say, I don't think that such a thing is possible as a perfect outline for any book of the Bible when we study it. I don't think, honestly, that even the writers were writing in that way. They were just sort of naturally sharing truths and things that were out of the overflow of their heart and mind as the Holy Spirit was guiding and directing them through their personality and through their understandings and their experiences. So I don't think they were writing in an outline form. They were just speaking out of the overflow of their heart and mind and through that, however, as the Spirit was directing their thoughts, inspiring them to write what they did, certain spiritual themes and topics certainly arose and flowed out as they communicated. So rather than sort of outline the book for you, I want to just identify, if I could, maybe help identify some of the topics and the themes that we'll see as we go through First Peter together. Sort of to kind of give you a little... Uh, kind of advance awareness of what's on the menu as we digest the book of 1 Peter and kind of unpack it and go through it in the, the season ahead as we study it. First of all, we'll notice that Peter speaks about the living hope that we can find in our Lord Jesus Christ. The living hope that we have in Jesus Christ in a dead, dying, and decaying world all around us, that we still have a hope. Peter writes, certainly we'll see quite a bit of emphasis to encourage those who are suffering and to help those who are struggling. So it's a great letter for those who are struggling and suffering in their lives. Peter will emphasize the value of humility. And Peter understood the value of humility, if you know anything about his life and experiences, as he was a disciple of Jesus from the Gospels. He had been humbled on more than one occasion. And Peter understood the value of humility in our Christian walk. Peter will also write to show of how we need the grace of God. And he'll talk much about the grace of God. And specifically in the fifth chapter, he'll talk about the God of all grace. So whatever kind of grace we need in our lives to help in struggles, to enable us in marriage or our, our Christian daily service or, or that whatever we need God's grace for, he supplies the measure of grace that we need and the exact type of grace because there are many different ways that we need the grace of God in our lives. And lastly, we'll see Peter will also, I think, sort of write in a way to help the believer maintain perspective especially as we navigate through a time that may be difficult and hard in our lives that we need to keep perspective and Peter writes in a way to show us how to maintain perspective. Well, draw your attention with me back to verse 1. Let's begin to look at our verses together. It begins by saying Peter, 
an apostle of Jesus Christ. So we note that Peter introduces himself by stating his name as the very first word in the letter. And this is very typical in ancient letters, not just in scripture, but in ancient letters in that day, where a writer at the beginning of the letter would identify themselves rather than the way we traditionally write letters today, where we identify ourselves at the end of the writing. The reason a lot of it was just practical. They wrote on scrolls and so forth. So if you had a lengthy scroll, it was much more helpful to just open the initial part of the scroll and to see right away who it was from rather than try and unroll this long cumbersome thing to the end to have to find out who was writing you so the light writers would typically identify themselves at the beginning of letters and then you knew who was writing you right from the start and and, and kind of got a sense of maybe where things may be coming from because of the identity of the person and peter identifies himself in verse one here as well as an apostle of Jesus Christ now that word apostle when you look at it basically means a sent out one it refers the, the word used refers to one sent out with the credentials of being on a mission one sent out with credentials because of their mission so that word apostle indicates spiritual authority that Peter understood he was ordained and sent out by the Lord Jesus Christ himself, uh, indicating that his calling and his commission made him a divine representative. So what he is reminding us is that what he is speaking and writing has divine authority behind it. This is coming from an apostle of Jesus Christ. It has divine authority in what is being communicated. He goes on then to say to the pilgrims of the dispersion, in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So after identifying himself, Peter secondarily then addresses who it is that he was writing this particular letter that he was. And we take note that he was not writing to a specific local church. And we just studied the book of Philippians together. That different was a letter written specifically to a local church. It was written to the church of Philippi to a local congregation. Colossians was written to the church in Colossae. So some of the New Testament letters are written to a specific local congregation. And then there are other epistles. We often call them general epistles because they weren't written to a local congregation, but they're written to a wider group of Christians as a whole in a territory. And here we see this letter was written to a, a wider group of Christians, pilgrims living in various different regions of Asia Minor. And Peter lists some of the areas that this letter would be reaching and going to. And these are territories that were Roman provinces south of the Black Sea. If you were to look at a modern map today, these territories mentioned basically make up the area of modern Turkey, a lot of the area of modern Turkey. So it gives you sort of a geographic reference. And he refers to them, notice, as pilgrims of the dispersion. Now that word pilgrim there refers to one who journeys in a foreign land. Someone who is a temporary resident in a foreign place that's not their home. And I look at that and I think, man, what a great description the Holy Spirit gave Peter to describe a Christian. A temporary resident in a place that's not their home. 
a traveling individual who is in a foreign land that's not their permanent residence. We live here as Christians in our present world right now. This is our present place of location, but we are traveling through it each day with the awareness that this is not our homeland. This is not our permanent dwelling place. The Bible tells us in Philippians 3 that we are citizens of heaven. And this is where our challenge and conflict comes from because in a sense, we almost have a dual citizenship. We are citizens of heaven in Christ Jesus, but like when Paul wrote to the Philippians, they were also there in Philippi and they did have a, a current citizenship on the earth. And the conflict comes between trying to learn how to be a temporary citizen where you are, realizing your permanent citizenship is in the heavenly realms where ultimately you'll spend eternity. But we have to remember and be conscious of the fact that right now we are pilgrims. We're in a foreign land. We're temporary residents on foreign soil. This is not our home. We are passing through on our journey home to heaven. That is the Christian experience. And I think it's essential to remember that because hear me, by way of application, that is why many times you feel sort of out of place here on this earth. That is why you feel uncomfortable here on earth at times. You ever felt like you don't fit in sort of once in a while? Maybe you're a Christian and in your school you kind of feel like, gosh, I don't, just don't feel like I can completely fit in. Or maybe in your job place, you're trying to live for the Lord. You work with a bunch of people who don't know the Lord. And you just kind of always feel like you just don't fit in. You feel kind of out of place and uncomfortable. Listen, well, that's an indication of something good, honestly. I know it's challenging, but it's also an indication of something. Any of us who've ever traveled before, I haven't done much, but I've been over to Europe for a few mission trips, to Ireland, I've been to the Dominican Republic on mission trips, and you ever notice that when you travel to a foreign land, you always kind of have a general sense of, you kind of just feel a little bit awkward, whether it's the language barrier or just the environment, the living conditions, the laws, the way they do things, the culture, you always kind of just feel a little out of place, like you're a, a visitor. You're, 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 just, you're not permanently connected to everyone else there. Well, that's the same idea. As Christians, we're temporary residents in a foreign land. That's also why you feel a little homesick. That's why at times as a Christian, you have a restlessness in your spirit and a longing to kind of want to be home. That's an okay thing. I don't think it should paralyze you and make you bury your head in the sand here as a Christian and, oh, well, I can't wait to get out of here. I can't wait to get out of here. I can't wait to get out of here. Well, do something while you're still here. Don't be so excited to get out of here that you never do something. You know, you're here right now. The Bible says that we do groan inwardly in these earthly bodies for heaven. That's why you feel a little restless and homesick. That's an indication to just remind you. And as well, the fact that we are pilgrims in a foreign land should also make us have an awareness that keeps us from getting, listen, overly attached, too ingrained, and too involved on this current earth in temporal affairs. Paul would tell Timothy, no one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life. That when somebody's a soldier, they don't overly get involved in civilian affairs because they realize they can't. 
They need to be in submission to whatever their commanding officer would have them do. And they need to be engaged in the purpose for which they have been drafted into their current position. And the fact that we are pilgrims in a foreign land, this isn't our home. We need to be careful as Christians in balance that we're not sinking our roots in too deep here. I understand being comfortable and and being settled. But before we know it, we could be pulling up our tent pegs and moving on at any moment. The trumpet could blow and we could all be out of here. Or something could happen catastrophically and we could lose our life tomorrow, quite candidly. We just don't know. So because of that, we should have a light grip on this world. Nothing wrong with having possessions and being a part of a material experience on this earth, but we should have a light grip way more than everyone else in our world who has a very tight grip on physical and temporal things of this planet. And we should be those who are a lot less over-involved in our indulgences of everyday experiences here on this earth. Look with me over in 1 Peter chapter 2. Just turn to the second chapter and look what Peter says there in relation to that same thing. Verse 11. 1 Peter 2.11. Listen to to this older saint here. He's, He's talking with great depth of experience as an older saint in the Lord. 1 Peter 2.11, he says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners, travelers, and there's our word, pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak evil against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation and then he goes on to speak more of the the same type of things but again this idea he says look I know it's hard he even uses the word abstain which means that you have to actually consciously choose to resist from indulging in something that you want to or that you desire to. He says that you have to abstain. That's where abstinence comes from with sexual relations. You, you abstain. The desire to do it may be there, but you abstain. He says you have to abstain. I have to abstain from the fleshly lust that war against our soul saying, get involved in this and try that and satisfy this and buy this and enjoy that. And, and we have to kind of abstain sometimes recognizing who we are, keeping a light grip so that we don't become over-entangled in our Christian lives. So he calls them pilgrims, back in verse 1 with me, pilgrims of the important word dispersion. Pilgrims of the dispersion. And that word dispersion there refers to a group of people who have been scattered and distributed out in various directions. He mentions how these Christians had been spread around these different areas of Asia Minor And Peter understood that that distribution of their lives was really by God's wisdom and God's providence. The word that Peter uses there, dispersion, in the Greek is the diaspora, which was an Old Testament idea of the Jews who were scattered around. And Peter picks up on this idea for these Christians who had been dispersed and scattered around different territories. And that word diaspora in the Greek literally could be translated the scattering or sowing of seed. So what Peter is bringing to their attention is these believers, Peter says, you have been sown all around like seed by God on his harvest fields all over that territory there in Asia Minor. That God, like a sower sowing seed, his harvest field, 
wanting Christians to be a light in the different places where he needs to use them to have impact and influence, that he sowed them out like seed. He dispersed them, and he dispersed some of them in Pontus, some of them in Galatia, some over in Cappadocia, some in Asia, some in Bithynia. And you know what? That is exactly what the Lord does still with you and I as Christians. Hey, we meet in this particular spot for worship on a Sunday morning and that spot may, may change in regards to geographically where a local church assembles together. But when you look so often at the gathering of any assembly of believers, you realize that they come from different territories where God has sown us to live in and to work in. So the Lord has sown some of us. So some of us are from Atlantic City or from Ocean City or Marmora or from Egg Harbor Township or Summers Point and, and here in the local communities of Ventnor and Margie. And the Lord says, oh, that's, that's purposeful. Like seed, I'm dispersing you to live in those areas and to work in those areas that you might be a light to impact and that you might bring fruit in the harvest field of God's kingdom so that you can have an influence where you work or where you live and where God has sown you to be effective for him. And this was the case with these believers. Look with me in verse 2. Here's where you kind of have to... Shed the baby teeth now because Peter starts to get into some meaty doctrine at this point. He calls these Christians elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. So as Peter continues now after his opening comments to write to these believers, he sort of, again, notice he jumps right in to really deep theological truths and he describes what I think he had discovered regarding God's process of salvation. The first thing I want to draw your attention to in verse 2 there before we begin to dissect it is notice first of all the reference and mention here in this second verse of the Trinity. You have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit referenced in one verse. And the Bible in both Old Testament and New Testament teaches this glorious mystery that our God is a trinity. One God manifested in three distinct persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And all three equally divine in their nature, power, and attributes, functioning separately in their roles but yet at the same time operating in complete unity simultaneously. 2 Corinthians 13, Paul refers to this by saying, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And take notice as we go through this, Peter here mentions all three members of the Godhead, all three members of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, they were all at work and all involved in our glorious salvation that we've experienced. So describing our great salvation, how it happens and unfolds in our lives. First of all, notice Peter refers to that we are, he says first, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. That we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God. And when you look at the term elect there in the original language, it is a term used to pick out or select among a group of people. It's what we do on election day. You have a group of people and you elect, you select a certain one out of 
a group of people. That's the term that he uses there. Peter's rejoicing in the fact that God actually selects and picks us to be his children. And for Peter, no doubt, I think this blew his mind, especially knowing who he was. This blew Peter's mind that God actually chose him to become a child of God, that God elected and chose him to spend eternity with him forever. And no doubt Peter remembered, I think, again, I think he remembered as he's writing this and processing all this himself theologically, he remembered hearing Jesus say years ago in John 15, verse 16, these words. Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And he told his disciples that. In other words, Jesus was telling the disciples, telling Peter as well personally, Peter, the only reason you are following me, and remember this was the last night the Lord Jesus was with them, the only reason, Peter, you're following me, the only reason you chose to follow me, the only reason you have a relationship with me is because I predestined and predetermined that you would be my follower that I elected you, that I chose you, I selected you, pursued you, and I called you to myself. And here we have Peter addressing what is often referred to as the doctrine of divine election. The doctrine of divine election, which teaches that God chooses and selects those to be saved. That those who are saved were actually predestined by God previously to experience salvation. Listen to Acts 13, verse 48. It says, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4, Paul the apostle there says that God chose us in him, listen, before the foundation of the world. What a glorious thought to think that the God of all creation actually in his capability to decide picked and selected you as a Christian as a child of God to be saved to become his child that he selected you to spend eternity with him forever and ever maybe this morning you're here and maybe everybody else in your life has always overlooked you maybe you never got picked for anything Maybe you were that individual who, you know, even when you played you know, sandlot football or something, and you know how that is, or you're going to even to this day still play like a picnic volleyball game, and okay, let's pick teams, and everybody gets there in a line, and then that process starts happening where you, you got, I'll take you, and I'll take you, I'll take you, and you're thinking, oh boy, here we go again. And it gets down to even that last two, right? And then you're thinking, okay, there's two of us left. Okay, well, and it's the person's turn to, and, and, and they pick, and then the last, okay, well, then I guess you're on that team because <laughs> you never get picked. Maybe you've always been overlooked your whole life. Maybe you've always been devalued and passed by and no one ever saw any real meaning or purpose in your life. Can I encourage you this morning as a Christian? God chose you. He picked you. He actually selected you to be his child. That shows what tremendous value God puts upon your life. He picked you to be on his team. That's amazing. It shocks me that God would pick me to be on his team, to be his child and for his purposes. And that should make you feel extremely secure in your spiritual life. 
That should make you feel incredibly secure that before you were ever born, God determined before the foundations of the world that you would be saved knowing everything about you, knowing everything that you would do in your life before you got saved and came to Jesus Christ, knowing the skeletons that would be in your closet and the grievous mistakes that you would make, that we would all make, that you feel so, maybe to this day still, defiled over the grievous things. That thing that you did that maybe no one else knows that you carry on as a dark spot in your soul. God said, I, I knew you were going to do that before you were ever born. And I still picked you. I still picked you. And all the mistakes and shortcomings or maybe the flaws, even once we start walking with the Lord, the times that we would backslide or really blow it morally, even like Peter did, we deny the Lord. And God said, I knew you were going to do all that. And I still picked you. I still picked you. I still chose you to be my child. God in his sovereignty graciously initiates and enables the whole salvation process. This is the Bible doctrine of election or predestination. Listen to what Romans 8 says, Romans 8, 29 and 30. It says, For whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, those he called. Whom he called, those he justified. Whom he justified, he also glorified. Now stay with me in the text here in a proper understanding. Notice that the Father did this. God elected us or predestined us or chose us. Verse 2, it was according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now that word foreknowledge describing God's nature and capability means that God has the ability to know all things. That God knows all things about everything and everyone ahead of time. He has complete understanding of everything for all time and eternity. He's God. Please remember this morning, God cannot learn anything like we do. He can't learn anything. He's all-knowing. He's omniscient. He knows everything about everyone. There is nothing that is ever new information for God, okay? We need to recognize there's a vast difference between who we are and how we process life and who God is. God can't learn anything. Nothing surprises him. He has complete knowledge of everything and before things ever happen. Acts 15 says it this way, known to God from eternity are all his works. God knows everything and how everything will turn out, and he acts in accordance with that knowledge. He acts in accordance with his foreknowledge. So the basis of God's foreknowledge is the basis of God's election and predestination for people to be saved, the Bible tells us. Notice, it was according to the foreknowledge of God. It was the foreknowledge of God that was the basis of God's election. Here's the dilemma. We don't have foreknowledge as human beings. And this is why mentally, because we don't have this ability to know all things, we struggle. We struggle trying to process this. One of the best illustrations, and it's not perfect, certainly by any means, that I can try and grasp the distinction between these two things is, if you picture a, good, picture a parade, and picture a Goodyear view blimp of a parade, a Thanksgiving Day parade, and from the Goodyear blimp, 
You can see the entire parade. You can see all the beginning of the parade. You can see the floats in the middle. And you can see the last float all the way down at the end of the parade. You can see the whole thing at once. Now, you're at the parade and you're standing on the corner of 6th and whatever. And you're on the street corner watching the parade. And you're seeing the parade go by what? One float at a time. You may be able to see one float ahead and maybe one back, but other than that, you can't see what's already gone by and you certainly can't see what's still coming. You can see frame by frame one event at a time. And that's sort of the difference. God has the picture and the awareness and the knowledge of everything. We experience life one day, one frame at a time. Our minds are finite and limited, so we wrestle mentally because we try and grasp at times some of the deep doctrines theologically in the Bible and we try and understand this idea of predestination and election and we try and reconcile and wrestle through wait, wait, how's that all work out in relation to free will human responsibility and as a result that has led to endless debates especially among those who have to set aside faith to satisfy their logical mind and to satisfy their intellect and to prove that their camp theologically is right and their camp theologically is wrong as people fly to extremes instead of taking a balanced approach to just what does the Bible say. They have to build an extreme and build a whole camp theologically and cling to one thing. And, and, and you know, people begin, well, how does election work? And how does that election line up with free will and personal responsibility? And then, wait a minute, so did God choose me? Or did I choose God? Yes. <laughs> did I choose God or did God choose me? Yes. Both. Because the Bible teaches both. The Bible very clearly teaches divine election and the Bible very clearly emphatically teaches free will, moral agency, and personal responsibility. They are like two parallel lines that run through scripture. One man said before, I believe it was to Spurgeon, how do you reconcile divine election and free will? He said, I don't. Why reconcile two friends? I don't need to reconcile them. I don't have to mentally reconcile them. One does not cancel out the other. Both truths exist in scripture. Both truths are important to God. And from God's perspective, those two doctrines don't even contradict one another. From God's perspective, which is different, remember, than ours, somehow they actually complement one another. I think when we get on the other side of eternity and we have a different vantage point, maybe we'll see that more fully. We struggle to reconcile them mentally and we get into huge debates because, again, we have to prove one side or the other. We have to recognize and accept by faith both are taught in the Word of God. Both are predestination, divine election, that God chooses those who are saved. And the Bible also teaches human responsibility and free will that we must accept Jesus Christ and God holds us accountable for that in order to be saved and experience eternal life. And let me just say this, as we're looking at a passage about divine election, I know it's not always the easiest thing to reconcile mentally, but one thing election and predestination does when it's taught in the Bible, and that is this, it allows God to be God. It allows God to be sovereign. And it lets God be who he is. So I would say this. Don't wrestle mentally to the ends of the earth of how it all works and operates. Can I encourage you in childlike faith? Just rejoice personally that it does. 
It works. It works that God can pick me and choose me and that makes me feel extremely secure. As a Christian, it feels absolutely wonderful as a child of God to know God chose me. God in His foreknowledge chose you. That makes me feel extremely, extremely secure in my life. Think about it. If you had foreknowledge, which we don't, but if you had foreknowledge and you were going to Okay, you are going to play the lottery, which you shouldn't, okay? You don't have foreknowledge, and I don't recommend you playing the lottery. Don't misinterpret this here. But if you had foreknowledge, and you were going to play the lottery, and you knew the exact number that... Would you pick a losing number? Right? Of course you wouldn't. If you had foreknowledge, and you were going to play the lottery, you would pick the winning number. Well, what does that tell me? Listen, you should be very encouraged this morning. If God picked you, it means that God doesn't pick losers. He picks winners. He picks winners. And despite what you think about yourself or what anyone else may tell you or how you acted and so your spouse made you feel like a loser before you got here this morning, from God's perspective, you're a winner. And God values you. And he wants you on his team. And he picked you to spend eternity with him. And as a Christian, that should make you feel extremely secure in your spiritual walk. That God's going to finish what he started in your life. That he's going to take it to completion. Let me just say this before we move on. One major mistake, and I emphasize the word major mistake, that people make regarding the doctrine of election is they in their own assumptions try and logically carry it out to conclusions that they should not. And let me explain what I mean by that. What people do is say, well, if God predestines and chooses certain people to be saved and go to heaven, then he must also predestine and choose other people to be lost and go to hell. That sounds logical, but that's unbiblical. Because the Bible never teaches that God chooses people to be lost and go to hell. The Bible does teach clearly here's another passage that God chooses those who are saved and go to heaven but the Bible does not teach that God chooses and elects people to be lost and go to hell you won't find that in the Bible it sounds like a logical conclusion well if this then it's got to be that but God's not logical and we have to be careful when we try and carry things out to logical conclusions we can really get off theologically the Bible teaches whoever will may freely come that it's not God's will that any would perish but that all would come to repentance. I think for me it's simplified in this. Predestination is a doctrine for Christians. It's a doctrine for Christians to feel secure and valued and to know, wow, God chose me and he's going to finish with me and, and despite who I am, he loves me and he cherishes me and I'm his child. Wow, I feel so secure. He's not going to... He adopted me. He picked me. And so he's committed to me like a father. And I think that free will is a doctrine to share with the unsaved, that they sense the personal responsibility and accountability that they have to choose Jesus Christ. They have to accept him as Savior or they will be damned and they will be lost and they need to sense the fact that they have a choice to make and God holds them accountable for that choice. Secondly, notice that Peter then says, after being elected according to the foreknowledge of God, he says, in sanctification of the Spirit, in sanctification of the Spirit. Now, sometimes sanctification is a reference to a Christian's growth in holiness. 
by the same token here, it's not referring to the process of us being conformed to Jesus as it's taught in other places, but here the inference is the process of how we came to Jesus in our salvation. The word sanctification means to be set apart. And what Peter's talking about, we're elected and chosen by God the Father for salvation, and then it is the Holy Spirit who sets us apart in the process of spiritual conversion to bring us into salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit sets us aside. He pursues us. He draws us. John 16 says that when the Holy Spirit comes, he's who convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. I think 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 13 and 14 is a good commentary on what Peter's trying to convey. It says this, God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth to which he called you by our gospel for obtaining the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, the idea here is this. It's the Holy Spirit who works in a person's life to put him in the right place among the right people to experience what they do to have encounters with folks going through experiences all for the purpose that the Holy Spirit is working all those events and experiences and interactions with people on this earth to prepare our heart for salvation so whether that was the Holy Spirit put you in a Christian family so you could hear about the name of Jesus and know the gospel from the earliest age so that he could cultivate your heart because he knew that was what you would need to make a commitment to Jesus Christ, then that's how the Holy Spirit's working in your life. Or whether you had none of that experience, but yet at some point in your life, you met a Christian or you worked with somebody who was saved, or God brought into your path somebody who shared the gospel, and you said no, but then a week later you met someone else, and they were talking to you about Jesus. And the Holy Spirit's coordinating all these things, and He is the one who's setting us apart, getting us ready for salvation. He brings conviction of sin. He convinces us of our own need of salvation. It's the Holy Spirit who reveals to us who Jesus is and God's plan of salvation through him and introduces us to Jesus Christ so that we can obtain and experience salvation. And I don't know about your personal testimony and experience, but boy, I can remember this process in my life. I wasn't raised in a Christian home, but yet the Holy Spirit worked in a way whereby he set me apart and began to coordinate events and activities and put people into my path. And in a very personal way, I can look at it and I can see every bit of it clearly now. That was the Holy Spirit drawing me and wooing me and convincing me so that I ultimately would come into a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what the Spirit of God does. So the Father chooses us. The Spirit sets us apart and works on us that we might bring ourselves to that place of being ready with a prepared heart. And finally, notice, it was, it says, this was all for the obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. So the work of the Holy Spirit brings us to the place that we're spiritually prepared. We now understand the need and offer of the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ to experience salvation. Peter uses this term, the sprinkling of blood. And I think, again, Peter's a Jew. No doubt he's thinking of the Old Testament experience, likely of maybe the Day of Atonement, 
when the high priest would go in once a year and he would sprinkle the blood there upon the mercy seat to make atonement for the sins of the people. Or perhaps Peter is thinking of those rare few times when the people themselves were actually sprinkled with the blood of the innocent sacrifice. Like in the establishment of the covenant, the inauguration of the covenant in Exodus 34. Or maybe on the cleansing of the leper. When a leper was cleansed from his leprosy, he was sprinkled with the blood personally and directly. And all of these things, these sprinklings of blood, were just powerful allusions to the blood of Jesus Christ that would cleanse us from sin when we would come to him. That once we realize who we are as guilty sinners before a holy God, deserving his wrath, but yet Jesus, the innocent substitute, shed his blood for us. And now if we come to Jesus by faith, we realize Jesus, the Lamb of God, can take away our sin. The Bible tells us in 1 John that the blood of Jesus Christ can cleanse us from all sin. So when we understand by faith, applying the blood of Jesus to my life by accepting his my Savior is how I'm forgiven and free from the penalty of sin, I understand the state of affairs. The Spirit's drawn me. He's been convincing me of these things. He's been making me aware, okay, I understand the terms now. The wages of my sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, my Lord. And now the Holy Spirit has brought me, he's brought you to the point of the doorway of salvation. And what did Jesus say in John chapter 10? He said, I am the door. And if anyone enters by me, he will be saved. See, there is a part we do have in salvation, a responsibility before God. And that is our response once we've been brought to the door of salvation, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. Look what he says in verse 2. Take note of it there in the text. It says, for obedience and the sprinkling of blood. Circle those two terms, for obedience. The implied idea there is obedience in faith, that we do have a part in the process. Obedience in belief. God does everything, but we have to obey in submission. We have to, by faith, respond and submit to the claims of the gospel and accept the terms. Listen, here it is, and here's human responsibility. Here's free will. Here's the fact that we have to choose, am I going to disobey the claims of the gospel and reject Jesus Christ? Or am I going to accept and submit in obedient faith to the claims of the gospel and ask Jesus to save me? The gospel is something to be responded to by the sinner. Acts chapter 6 verse 7 says this, The word of God spread and the number of disciples multiplied. Listen, and a great number of the priests were obedient to the faith. I like that in the early church. Priests were getting saved. Priests were getting saved. They were becoming obedient to the faith, the genuine saving faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. It tells us as well, later on in the first chapter, in verse 22, Peter says, Since you've purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, you were then born again. How were we born again? When we obeyed the truth. What truth? The truth of the gospel of salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ who shed his blood to forgive our sins. Again, and there are other places where the Bible speaks of those who don't know God or those who don't obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The point I want you to sense is this. Human responsibility is never removed from us in the Bible. Never. 
It's never removed from us. If I can illustrate it this way, picture a person's drunk. Okay, and a person is drunk, they made bad decisions, and in their drunken state, they fall into the bay and they can't swim. And so they're drowning. They're bad decisions and they are drowning. And someone chooses to throw them a life preserver and to give them an opportunity so they can be then pulled in, they can't save themselves, to be pulled in to be rescued. The fact that a source of salvation has been provided for them is not enough for them to be saved. True? They have to humbly recognize and accept their condition as they're drowning and they have to choose to grab hold of what's been offered to them so that they can then be pulled to a saving experience which they can't do for themselves. And see, in some way, mystically, beyond my little finite mind, somehow human responsibility cooperates with God's election and we experience eternal salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. I see it this way. For those who respond to receive Jesus Christ as Savior, when we receive Christ as Savior and we obey the message of the gospel and we accept Him as Savior, His precious blood sprinkles and cleanses us from all sin. Oh, I'm the child of God. And then as soon as we discover we're a child of God, it's like we walk through the doorway of salvation. You know, any who, and we walk through the doorway of salvation and we turn around and we see on the other side of the doorway, chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. We realize, well, I, did, I thought I'd choose him. And, <laughs> I, yeah, you chose me, but I chose you. And the reason you chose me was because I drew you. Like Jesus said, no one can come to the Father unless he be drawn. Hey, this morning, can I leave you with this thought? If you're a believer, can I encourage you? Ponder the grandeur of God's salvation. And I pray it blows your mind. I pray it blows your mind with gratitude that God chose and selected and drew and saved you and washed you clean from all your guilt. And if you're an unbeliever this morning and you're not yet saved, can I encourage you, submit, obey the claims of the gospel because God wants to save you. He's drawing you. He's calling you. And His Spirit has brought you here one more time or for the first time, to hear Jesus say to you, come, come to me, believe in me that I might save you and forgive you.